All right. Well, welcome, everyone. And we're uh, launching into a new study in the book of Proverbs. And uh, today is going to be, I don't know how to really characterize this, but it's probably going to be somewhat of an introduction to the introduction. Um, I've got some, some information or some, I guess, some uh, content that I want to just put out there for us to think about to kind of serve as just a launch point into the study and to uh, really prime the pump of our thinking around this study in Proverbs and, and the whole area of wisdom and discernment. And so uh, we're not going to really get too much into the actual text of Proverbs just yet. We'll, we'll take a look at it briefly at the very end, but I want to just use this time to prompt some thought for us um, as we enter into this study. And I would invite your, your feedback as we open up some questions for consideration and discussion as we kind of walk through this. But I'll just start with uh, this introductory statement. Most sociologists, anthropologists, psychologists, economists, and historians would agree that we now live in an information age. An information age. Now, in just making that statement, what do you think or what comes to mind when, when you think of the information age or living in an information age? What do you think is meant by that That category of our culture? Information age. There's so much readily available. Okay. I'll use a, a silly example. If I see a TV show and I recognize an actor and I say, where did I see that guy? I can look that up. Right. That information is always available. And that applies to so many different things. Okay, so access to information is... Ubiquitous, yes. Information overload. Information overload. That's actually a technical sociological term. There has been no shortage of research papers and studies done on the uh, presence of, the causes of, the effects of information overload in this information age. What else? Okay. Speed of information, speed of information coming at us. Yes, all these are right on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the true enough. So the spread of information, the vast reach of information, might be another characteristic. Yeah. This is all right in line with what you would read if you were to read scholarly articles on this, you know, sociological reality of life in an information age. Any other ideas? Yeah. Okay, so what you're putting forward is that there might be problems with living in an information age. Imagine that. Imagine that. And yes, yeah, some of those would be the effect, the actual effect on neurology and, and, and processing of information and even uh, studies, lots of studies done on that and the effects on children and their ability to focus um, or the lack of ability to focus. So yeah, huge. Were you going to say something, John? I don't know, did it? No, it's been coming, huh? Actually, if you, if you look at, uh, if you do a little reading on this, I mean, they'll, they'll take you back into the 70s, really, as, as kind of a starting point of this, you know, uh, um, I guess beginning of this information boom in this information age and, and the rapid pace of it um, uh, that took place over that time period. 
So yeah, I mean, I, I think that you guys are right in line. In fact, you don't have to you don't have to Google anything, right, to get information about the information age. You you kind of experience it. You're living in it. That's really kind of the point. To say that we're living in an information age, I mean, you guys just without any prior knowledge of the question I'm going to ask, without even any preparation, uh, you you know what the characteristics of it are. I mean, in fact, some of the things that you said, you will find in you know, research articles and reports, it might be part of their premise, the premise of their study, or it might be one of the bullet points of their characteristics of an information age. I mean, you're like tapping into it because you're living in it, like you're experiencing it. You're experiencing the effects of it. We're all, you know, inculcated by the whole characteristics associated with living in an information age. I'll give you a little bit of information, though, about the information age, a little bit of data to kind of continue to, to prime your thinking on this. The, uh, the information age is the idea that access to and the control of information is the defining characteristic of this current era in human civilization. So it's not just about access to information, but it's also the control of information. Define, it's a defining characteristic of this current era in human civilization. Now listen to this about just information in general as it relates to um, this age that we're living in. The world's technological capacity to store information grew from 2.6, and that's optimally compressed. I'm getting into some uh, data, some uh, some, uh, IT kind of terminology. The world's technological capacity to store information grew from 2.6 exabytes, in 1986, to 15.8 exabytes in 1993, to over 54.5 exabytes in 2000, and to 295 exabytes in 2007. So this data just only goes through 2007. Now, what is an exabyte? So to give you an idea, if it goes from 2.6 exabytes of data, stored information, in 1986 to 295 exabytes in 2007, what's that mean? Well, an exabyte is a unit of information equal to one quintillion bytes or one billion gigabytes. So that brings it more into probably terminology that you're familiar with, a gigabyte of information. So an exabyte, 295 exabytes, would be, one exabyte would be the equivalent of one quintillion Bytes or one billion gigabytes. It's it was in, it was ten to the eighteenth power or something like something like that. Ten to the eighteenth power. Yeah. So, bottom line is that that just the ability or the capacity to store information has expanded exponentially since the mid-80s. Now, just to give you a comparison, this is the equivalent to less than one 730 megabyte CD-ROM per person in 1986, or roughly four CD-ROMs per person in 1993, or 12 CD-ROMs per person in the year 2000, and almost 61 CD-ROMs per person in 2007. So just to give you an idea of just the piling up of information. 404 billion CD-ROMs from 2007 would create a stack from Earth to the Moon 
and a quarter of the distance beyond. So in other words, if you had that many CD-ROMs of information per person multiplied times the people, you'd have a lot of CD-ROMs stacking from here to the moon and beyond. That's the amount of information storage capacity that was on record in 2007. So that's seven-year-old, or excuse me, uh, yeah, 10-year-old data. The world's technological capacity to receive information through one-way broadcast networks was 432 exabytes of information in 1986, 715 exabytes in 1993, 1,200 exabytes in 2000, and 1,900 exabytes in 2007. So again, storage capacity of information and then one-way transmission of information, all of it exploding by order of magnitude. And that's, that's the ability to receive that information. Now the world's effective capacity to exchange information through two-way communication networks was 0.281 exabytes of information in 1986, 0.471 exabytes in 1993, 2.2 exabytes in 2000, and 65 exabytes in 2007. So again, the advent of broadband communication where, I mean, does anybody remember dial-up? You remember that? You remember like, and it's connecting and that sound. And do you remember when, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see where you guys date on the, uh, the uh, evolution of, of, of communications. But I think, I think it was 1,900 baud rate modem, and then it jumped to 2,400 baud rate modem. And then they added this accelerator technology where you could get all the way up to 56K. And remember how you used to you have to used to go to like a, a web page or you go to you know America Online. Remember America Online, AOL, America Online. You've got mail. Remember all that? And you'd log into these these dial-up modem with these dial-up modems, and you'd just like wait for this image to slowly appear on the page. Remember all that? So the 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 I'll, I'll never forget. I, I will never forget. Alicia and I had been married for a year ish, something like that, a year and a half or so. I mean, I remember the apartment that we were living in, in Irving, Texas, when we first, we first got on the information superhighway. We, I, I, got an, I got an America Online account, and I had a modem and a computer, and, I'm t- and it was so funny, because I sent an email to someone, and I, I was on the phone with them, asking them if they got it, and I was amazed at how fast I could send the email, and all of a sudden, it appeared on their computer. It was, like, stunning to think about. And you, you, you have those kinds of conversations now, and it's like, I mean, try having that kind of conversation with someone who grew up with, like, broadband technology and access to the Internet and, you know, smartphones and all that sort of stuff. I mean, having those kind of conversations is just, I can't even imagine that. I remember the days when guys used to come to the door selling encyclopedias. Well, that's, that's, that's going back. Just think of encyclopedias as, like, that's actually a book. You're talking about an actual book with pages in it, aren't you, when you're talking about encyclopedias? So yeah, so we're living in a day and time where information, access to information, the spread of information, the ability to store information, to transmit information, has exploded. There's, there's information in massive volume. There's information in wide access. There's information that's being consumed in enormous measure. <clears throat> the use of information is part of strategy for governments and companies and individuals and how they use, manipulate, and capitalize on information. 
There is dependency upon information. Have you ever misplaced your smartphone? You've ever felt the pain of, of not having access to, you know, the email or text message that you... I mean, there, there's a level of really, and for many, unconscious dependency upon information. We're not even aware of our dependency upon it until we're kind of without our connectivity to it. And then we feel a little bit like, uh, you know, a little bit unsettled, a little jittery about it, right? Now, I'm sure that all of us in this room begin to think biblical thoughts and we... We repent of that immediately, and we, we go on our way. But the fact of the matter is, is that you feel that initial like, oh, and it just goes to show the dependency that we have on our access to information. And then the speed of information was also mentioned. Um, the ability to access information, the, the amount of information. So combine all this, the volume of information, the, the, and not just in terms of a block of stored data, but the, the multitude of sources of information that are constantly coming our way. And, and the fact that we, have, we are in an environment or in a society or in a culture where we have become devout consumers of information. You gave a great example. You see a, a movie, I think you said a movie or a TV show, and there's an actor that you're not really that familiar with. And, and this happens, I mean, we do this all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's a perfect example where you're like, I don't, I've not really seen them in much or, or don't know much about them, so you Google them to find out what their whole backstory is. And so the fact of the matter is, is that we have just immediate access to information, and because of all that, it makes our consumption of information aggressive and constant. Now, what are some of the advantages that we can cite of living in this information age? Yes. Sure. You know, a vast, you know, huge population, the whole world, can benefit from that. Yeah. Yeah, What are some other advantages of living in this information age with these kinds of characteristics that we talked about? Yeah. Yeah, so grandbabies that are thousands of miles away are are way more accessible, right? I mean, moment by moment. And Skype, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So connecting to loved ones and family and friends in a more um, immediate kind of real-time kind of way. Maintaining those relationships that's based on the context of life experience that you're having in those moments. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Decision making. You know, if you're able to collect information, you're able to take in a lot of this and have a better, better informed, um, a possibility of better informed decisions of whether you should move to healthcare or whatever it may be. Okay, that's good. So, so with, with the, the assumption being that more information to analyze should, in general, or has the potential for yielding up more informed and hopefully better decisions. And the faster you can get it, you know, the faster those decisions can be made. Sometimes decisions need to be made quickly and 
Oftentimes, a rash decision or a quick decision is usually corresponding to maybe not the best decision, but if you have more information, yeah, it's good. Yeah, what else? Yeah, we're going to talk about the problems. In fact, let's transition. What are some of the problems? You mentioned a little bit already, but what are some of the tangible problems that we could identify with life and information age? Yes. To decide between judgment and discernment. Okay. So that kind of goes back to decision making, and, and it's not just the information that, that's the thing. It's what you do with the information. That's right. That's right. What else? Well, I think about news reporting, and you know, if you coming at the news, if you're a political outlet to be a, uh, maybe liberal or conservative, you kind of cherry pick what you want to report and shape the story based on what you choose to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're gonna. I've got some information on that too. That that's a huge the the, the actual control of information. Yeah. And what's disseminated, and how that information is shaped. And governments, governments can do the same thing. But here's the other side of that: the way we consume information is often shaped by our predetermined notions or our worldview and all that too. So it's not just a one-way, a one-way street there, right? It's both and. What are some other disadvantages? Yes. Mm-hmm. On it, and it may cause you worry or anxiety about well, this could happen or that could happen down the road. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? So you have this great medical information, and it it could it could create anxiety over a condition or a prognosis or that's interesting. We're so vulnerable if someone messed up with our. Yes, yeah, so our dependence upon it, it creates tremendous vulnerabilities that could affect large swaths of people in even profound, difficult ways. I mean, you go back to the, the medical community. I mean, what happens in a, a medical environment if there's a shutdown in, in means of communication and transmission of information? It could, there could be health risks or even life and death situations that are in play there. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So identity theft and all those kinds of things. Alicia was telling me this morning. Now you you want to you want to hear some late breaking news? But Alicia's Instagram account was was attempted to be hacked by a Russian hacker. Now I'm 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 trying to find out if she's like is she a part of the Trump administration and there's like some kind of angle or is there I mean I'm trying to figure out what the political implications of this in my own home and family I don't even know. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Down and plan ahead, where I felt like 
before cell phone stuff, I, like in my job, I used to plan ahead way more mm -hmm. weeks in advance. But now that everything's so readily available, it's just like, oh, I'll just get it when I need it. Just get it when I need it. And so it's like, I think, stopped a lot of planning and things that used to take more time because everything is so readily available. Yeah, so on one hand, you could say, you know, if you're, if you're going somewhere that you've never been before, you know, you're going to meet some friends or whatever in some part of town for a meal, and, you know, you're, you're in a rush after work and you're getting ready and whatever, and then you realize, oh, I forgot, to, I forgot to get directions or whatever. Well, that's no problem. I can pull up the directions. So that might be a good thing. But on the other hand, the discipline of thoughtful planning, if that gets lost, then that's a profound human effect. That's, that's what, much more significant than, than just thinking about the convenience of, or, or even the, the benefit of being able to get those directions at the spur of the moment and it kind of helping you navigate a time crunch. So it's really, I mean, you really start to think about this. It's, it is a, um, it's like trying to dance on the head of a needle in certain cases where the benefits of something can also have really negative implications, and and thus and thus the thoughts about wisdom and discernment. Right now, think about this. This kind of goes to what you were talking about about planning, um, especially in sort of the um, the work world, the the economy at large. In an article by Lydia Dishman of Fast Company Magazine, the title is, These Are the Biggest Skills That New Graduates Lack. It says, A new report from Payscale, a, provi a provider of on-demand compensation data and software in partnership with Future Workplace, an executive development firm, reveals that while 87% of recent graduates feel well-prepared to hit the ground running after earning their diplomas, only half of hiring managers agree with them. Critical thinking, problem solving, attention to detail, and writing proficiency top the list of skills managers find missing from job seekers. Overall, hiring managers found soft skills such as communication, leadership, ownership, and teamwork were missing in this new crop of workers. Now think about the fact that you've got people who are graduating college now who are fully entrenched children of the information age. They, they know nothing else other than the information age. And what's happening in the economy and in the workplace is that things that you could ascribe to living in an information age, growing up in an information age, being educated in an information age, these are things that all the benefits that would go into, that, that, that would be received in life and information age, are also yielding up consequences, such as critical thinking skills, the ability to write. When is the last time you sat down at a desk with paper in front of you and a pen, not even a quill with an ink deal, I'm talking like an actual modern pen, and wrote like a letter to someone? A thoughtful letter to someone. So, um, so this, these these skills, these these abilities, these ways of thinking are um, diminishing among people who are coming out of college, according to hiring managers. Another article 
uh, by a Forbes magazine staff writer entitled The 10 Skills Employers Most Want in 2015 Graduates. So this is a couple years old. Says this, can you work well on a team, make decisions, and solve problems? Those are the skills employers most want when they are deciding which new college graduates to hire. The next most important skill, ability to communicate verbally with people inside and outside an organization. Employers also want new hires to have technical knowledge related to the job, but that's not nearly as important as good teamwork, decision-making, and communication skills, and the ability to plan and prioritize work. Here's the top ten list. Number one, ability to work in a team structure. That has nothing to do with the ability to consume or have access to information. Ability to make decisions and solve problems. By the way, the ability to work in a team structure and the ability to make decisions and solve problems are tied for the, for the number one spot. Number three, ability to com- communicate verbally with people inside and outside an organization. Now, when you start thinking about the, the being an, a consumer of information or living in an information age and some of the accoutrements of life in that information age, what is often associated with that other than a diminishment of verbal communication? In fact, you talk to young people today, and I can't believe I'm saying young people. I used to think I was one, but I'm not anymore for sure. But you talk to like young people today, and when they say that they talked to their friend about this or that, they're not saying they talked to them. Nine times out of ten, that's not what they mean. They did not pick up a phone or drive over and meet them at a, a restaurant or whatever and have a conversation, a verbal conversation about a matter. When they say they talked to them, they meant they text. They texted. Or even, even more, they Snapchatted. I mean, in other words, they had, there were some pictures there to kind of capture some facial expression or whatever, but that's, that was the, the nature of the communication. But they used the term, I talked. I talked to them. And you've got employers that are saying, um, all this talking that you guys are doing in this information age is yielding up a a, a net effect that you guys don't know how to talk to one another. Actually speak and communicate and converse with one another. So, huge, huge problem. The ability to to obtain and process information is on the list as well. Now, notice that in this list, I'm now down to uh, number five on the list. I'm halfway through this list of top ten skills that employers want in in graduates coming out of school. And I haven't even gotten to actual knowledge pertaining to the job that they're applying for. You know, direct relevant knowledge about the job or, or technical competence in the, in the field in which they're pursuing a career. It hasn't even come up yet. Yeah, and or, well, actually, but they're surveying. They're actually surveying employers, too. So this is like, these are, these are people that are actually having to, you know, employ people and see the results or the you know, plus or minus, for better or for worse, in their organizations, too. I mean, it's just it's really a significant thing. I've, I've, had, I've heard this anecdotally from people. It, the research bears it out. I mean, I'm down to number six now, ability to analyze quantitative data. So again, analyze and critical thinking skills. It does, you don't see that until number seven, technical knowledge related to the job. So the top ten skills that are desired amongst employers, you don't get to relevant industry or job function experience or knowledge until number seven. Everything above that has to do with things that involve human interaction, teamwork, 
ability to verbally communicate with one another, ability to write effectively and proficiently, ability to plan, to thoughtfully plan something out. So all these things that we've been discussing, you can see how it plays out in the context of the marketplace. Now let's, let's go a step further in thinking about life in this information age. And let's think about the implications of social media. Social media. Now, in an article entitled, How Facebook Makes Us Unhappy, this is by Maria Konnikova of the New Yorker magazine. Here's what she says. No one joins Facebook to be sad and lonely. But a new study from the University of Michigan psychologist Ethan Cross argues that that's exactly how it makes us feel. Over two weeks, Cross and his colleagues sent text messages to 82 Ann Arbor residents five times per day. The researchers wanted to know a few things. How their subjects felt overall, how worried and lonely they were, how much they had used Facebook, and how often they had had direct interaction with others since the previous text message. Cross found that the more people used Facebook in the time between the two texts, the less happy they felt. And the more their overall satisfaction declined from the beginning of the study until its end. The data, he argues, shows that Facebook was making them unhappy. Research into the alienating nature of the Internet, and Facebook in particular, supports Cross's conclusion. In 1998, Robert Kraut, a researcher at Carnegie Mellon University, found that the more people used the web, the lonelier and more depressed they felt. After people went online for the first time, their sense of happiness and social connectedness dropped over one, over one to two years as a function of how often they used the Internet. This article goes on to talk about the whole area of envy and, how, and envy and discontentment, how the, the, the Internet itself, and social media in particular, allows people to provide very meticulously staged snapshots of how great their life is over and over and over again. And it's very common for people to peruse Facebook, Instagram, other social media environments and develop real discontent because what they're doing is they're comparing what, you know, their real life with, you know, laundry piled up and, you know, they're behind at work and the kids are screaming and all that to this awesome filtered photo of a stack of pancakes with butter and syrup oozing off of it and saying, breakfast this morning was awesome. And there, there's, there literally is this psychological effect of their life is awesome and look at mine. And people begin to become discouraged and depressed and discontent as a result of life in an information age and in particular their consumption of social media. Now let's, let's go to the news. That was brought up earlier, too. In this article entitled, The Now This Culture, Daily News and the Death of Wisdom, is the title of the article, by Joe Carter. This was written in 2010. He says, With the churning waste of the 24-hour news cycle, separating everything from everything, how do we discern what's truly important? Confess that you rarely read blogs, listen to talk radio, or watch reality television, And most people will make no general assumptions about your intelligence. But admit that you never watch television news, rarely listen to radio news broadcasts, and only read newspapers on Sundays and then only the comics page, and the reaction will be markedly different. You will automatically be pegged as being ill-informed, out of touch, and possibly even anti-intellectual. But what is it all about 
What is it about daily news that is worthy of such veneration? Why do so many people buy into the ridiculous notion that a daily diet of current events is anything other than a mindless, though perhaps harmless, form of amusement? Even ardent news hounds will admit that the bulk of daily news, in quotes, is nothing more than trivia or gossip. So how much of what happens every day is truly all that important? How many of us have ever stopped to ask why we even have daily news? One brave soul who has dared ask the question is University of Florida history professor C. John Somerville in his excellent book, How the News Makes Us Dumb, The Death of Wisdom in an Information Age. He defines dumbness as the inability to make connections, logical, historical, or factual. In this sense, Somerville argues, daily news serves to make us dumber. Here's a quote from his book. The product of the news business is change, not wisdom. Wisdom has to do with seeing things in their largest context, whereas news is structured in a way that destroys the larger context. You have to do certain things to information if you want to sell it on a daily basis. You have to make each day's report seem important. And you do that by reducing the importance of its context. End quote. The article goes on. We have substituted a hunger for context, the basis for knowledge and understanding, with an addiction to disconnected bits of information. Even more disconcerting is that we have come to believe that this habit is normal and that those who aren't hooked into daily news, into a daily news feed, are ill-informed. The late media critic Neil Postman once wrote that the media has given us the conjunction, now this, which does not connect anything to anything, but does the opposite. It separates everything from everything. Neil Postman quotes, is quoted as saying this, Now this, in quotes, is commonly used on radio and television newscasts to indicate that what one has just heard or seen has no relevance to what one is about to hear or see, or possibly to anything one will ever likely hear or see. The phrase is a means of acknowledging the fact that the world as mapped by the speeded-up electronic media has no order or meaning and is not to be taken seriously. There is no murder so brutal, no earthquake so devastating, no political blunder so costly, for that matter, no ball score or tantalizing weather report so threatening that it cannot be erased from our minds by a newscaster saying, now this. The the writer goes on to say, As a Christian, I'm expected to take an eternal perspective, viewing events not only in their historical context, but also in their eschatological context. But I can't do that if my attention is focused on the churning waste of the 24-hour news cycle, since events that are truly important are rarely those captured on the front page of a daily paper. As Malcolm Muggeridge admitted, admitted, quote, I have often thought that if I had been a journalist in the Holy Land at the time of our Lord's ministry, I should have spent my time looking into what was happening in Herod's court. I'd be wanting to sign Salome for her exclusive memoirs and finding out what Pilate was up to, and I would have missed completely the most important event there ever was. The writer of the article goes on, Indeed, imagine if CNN were reporting on events in first century Palestine. Quote, Three revolutionaries were crucified on Golgotha today. Included among the executions was a man called Jesus, who some Jews considered to be the Messiah. Those hopes were dashed, however, around 3 p.m. when the Roman soldiers declared Jesus dead. And now this. So even the effect of news media 
and the inundation of that information on our minds and the way that it's structured rips us away from actual thinking in context. And when you come to the place of considering wisdom, real wisdom, as essential to life in the Lord, living in an information age has many detractors from a life of wisdom. Now, as we stated at the outset, there there are innumerable benefits to living in an information age. This is not going to be a study that is a rant against Facebook or Instagram or daily news. It's not going to be that. But I think it's important as we enter into this study that we realize that our context, just the very oxygen that we breathe day in and day out as citizens living in an information age, there are countless detractors. There are countless obstacles that are in our way day in and day out that would prevent us or pull us back or distract us from pursuing wisdom, from walking in wisdom, from a life of wisdom. The writer of most of Proverbs, Solomon himself, said in Ecclesiastes 1.9, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new about the information age, fundamentally. That's what I would want to call all of us back to and to realize. That even though the information age itself, or the, the age that we live in, is so focused on next, new, now this, what's the latest and greatest, latest fashions, and our access to it and our ability to consume all that information makes us think that the best things are the next things coming. And it sets our minds into a place where we are constantly grasping after something else and something new. But wisdom, and in fact, Solomon would say, there's nothing new. Don't get caught in the trap of thinking that there's something new under the sun. And there's something new to be discovered that's going to make life better for everyone. That's going to make your life more pleasing and happy and content. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Now, what came to mind as I thought about life in this information age as the backdrop for a study of Proverbs and this call to wisdom, what came to my mind was, interestingly enough, was was, um, Isaiah's call in Isaiah chapter 6. Listen to what this says. This is is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Um, this vision of the Lord and how how Isaiah responded and how it affected him, and then his call to go. Listen to this passage in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his, his, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Now listen to this, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Notice the contrast there. The contrast between hearing, information, 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 versus understanding. The contrast between seeing, Exposure to images and sounds and information, 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 but not perceiving. Proverbs 1, 1 to 7. Let's tie this up. Where we'll start next week, Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7 says this. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. And here's the linchpin verse, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What you see in that scene with Isaiah in the temple is Isaiah understanding the fear of the Lord. And he's sent to go out to a people who have information, who have access to information, but they don't understand, who have seen quite a lot, but they're not perceiving. In other words, they're not wise, they're not walking in wisdom. If we'll use wisdom, a definition of wisdom as skillfully applying knowledge to the matter of practical living in the fear of the Lord. You can see how we live in a day and time where there's tremendous benefit that can be gained, even in the context of living out a life of wisdom under the Lord with all this information and this ability to transmit information. There's plenty of opportunity and benefit, but we also need to be cautioned that the tendency of man And even the tendency of us, unguarded and unrepentant, is to be seeing a lot, consuming a lot, exposed to tremendous amounts of information, but not walking in wisdom, not living life skillfully under the Lord and in the fear of the Lord. Solomon would call to us and say that the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of understanding, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And apart from it, it's just information. It's just information. 
I'll close with just a question, and I know the answer to it, so you don't really have to answer. And this kind of harkens back to what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. With this exponential, unprecedented expansion of access to, storage of, transmission to and back and forth of information, has the world gotten better? Have human beings gotten essentially wiser? Are we dealing with less problems in humanity than we did at the foundation of the world and the creation of man? Is the history of man shifted in some new and profound direction that makes everybody relish the the, the greatness of our technological advances? I would say no. So let's be students of wisdom. Let's be pursuers of wisdom in the fear of the Lord. Any closing thoughts or comments before we pray?